Let's begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Holy Spirit, we abandon ourselves to you this day. We ask you to come, Holy Spirit, and breathe into us your life. Open our minds that we could understand. Open our hearts that we could believe more deeply in your love for us. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to lead us and guide us this day and draw us closer to you. And Mary, we ask always for your motherly protection and for your motherly intercession upon us, now and all the days of our life, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. So this is a reading from the Gospel according to Luke. The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to listen to Jesus. But the Pharisees and the scribes began to complain, saying, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So to them he addressed this parable. What man among you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, would not leave the ninety-nine in the desert and go after the lost one until he finds it? And when he does find it, he sets it on his shoulders with great joy. And upon his arrival home, he calls together his friends and neighbors and says to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you in just the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous people who have no need of repentance. The Gospel of the Lord. A few years ago on the news, there was this tragic story, which you might remember. It's the story of a young man, a freshman in college, who was living in California. And this young man was struggling with some pretty serious mental illness. He was hearing voices in his head that was, that was telling him the only way out of all of his struggles and all of his pain was to end his life. And eventually he got tired of listening to these voices. And so he thought that they were right. That was the only option. And so his plan was he was going to get on a bus and drive to the Golden Gate Bridge. And when he got to the Golden Gate Bridge, he was going to jump off the bridge and end his life. And all of his problems would be over. And so this morning, this young man says goodbye to his family. Of course, he didn't tell them what his plans were. He gets in the, on the bus, which is about a 45-minute bus ride. And as soon as he gets on the bus, he starts to cry. And the reason he starts to cry is because he doesn't want his life to end. He just wants the pain to go away. And so he makes this decision while he's on the bus that if one person on this bus simply says hi to me or asks me how I'm doing, I won't jump off the bridge. 45 minutes later, he gets to the 
Golden Gate Bridge, and no one's asked him how he's doing, and no one's said hello. And so he gets to the bridge, starts walking up and down, and he says, okay, 15, 15 minutes, a walk up and down. If one person simply says hello to me, or asks me how I'm doing, I won't jump. About 10 minutes into that little walk up and down the bridge, a young married couple comes up to this young man and they ask him if he could take their picture because they were there from Europe on honeymoon. They just got married, so they came to the United States for their honeymoon and they were at the Golden Gate Bridge and they wanted a picture. So this young man takes the camera, takes the picture of them, gives the camera back, and he throws himself off the bridge. Because they never even said hello to him. They never even asked how he was doing. So he took that as a sign. Nobody cares. And as he jumped, he said that all of a sudden, it was just a few seconds that he's falling 200 feet to the water. But he said all of a sudden when he jumped, he, was, he realized that there was his presence with him that was much greater than anything he ever knew, than anything he ever experienced in his life. That there was his presence of love. How do we know what he was thinking? Because miraculously, he survived that jump. I wouldn't be telling the story if it had a sad ending. <laughs> okay, that's it, day's over. No. <laughs> that young man, by the grace of God, really a miracle, survived that jump from that bridge. But I think we have to ask this question, were the voices that he was hearing correct? Was there nobody who could save him could save us from our loneliness, from our depression, from our distorted ways of thinking. I believe that the parable of the lost sheep answers that question for us. In this parable, Jesus is speaking to two different groups of people. The first group are the tax collectors and the sinners. Not exactly the all-stars of Judaism at the day. You know, they were two groups of people whose lives were in a very real way a mess. They were a failure, in some sense an embarrassment because their lives were not oriented towards God. And then the other group of people, the Pharisees and the scribes, these are the religious people, you know, two groups of people whose lives were supposed to be different. You know, their lives were supposed to be virtuous, they were supposed to be prayerful, compassionate people. 
And yet they are confused by Jesus' actions. What did they say? They said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. They're, they're perplexed. They're skeptical because if Jesus was really of God, why would God eat with tax collectors and sinners when he should be eating with us, the religious people? And then Jesus tells them this parable. A man has a hundred sheep. He loses one and he goes off in search of that one. And when he finds that one, he brings him back and rejoices. How strange is this parable? You know, Jesus begins by saying, what man among you? Implying that all of us would do the same thing. But the reality is, a few of us would. If I had a hundred sheep and I lost one, I would say, well, that stupid sheep, it's his fault he's lost. <laughs> I have 99 other ones. I'm not going to go look for that one. You know, if, if, if we had a dollar and change and we dropped a penny, how many of us would really spend longer than five seconds looking for that penny? But Jesus wants to show us, I believe with this parable, from the very beginning, that there is a big difference between us and between him. Because Jesus is saying to us in this parable, I will look for that one. That even though it seems like a waste of time, and even though that sheep got lost because of his own fault, maybe he wasn't paying attention, maybe he got distracted, no matter what the circumstances are, Jesus says, I will go and look for that sheep. And of course, this is a parable. Jesus is not talking about sheep. He's talking about people. He's talking about us. Jesus is trying to show us how passionate God is about us. It almost seems impossible for us to believe that God, the creator of all, of everything that is, is passionate about us. I'm sure all of us here are familiar with St. Augustine and his conversion story. You know, especially if you're a mother, his mother, St. Monica, probably brings you a lot of hope. <laughs> but as you know, St. Augustine spent about 30 years of his life moving from these different groups, these different philosophy groups, these different religious sects, looking for the truth. And the whole time his mother is praying for him. And finally, after about 30 years, and many tears later from St. Monica, St. Augustine gets baptized. And he becomes a Christian. And becomes a priest and a bishop and a doctor of the church. So keep praying for your kids. <laughs> but towards the end of St. Augustine's life, 
when he's writing this book called The Confessions, where in some sense his like, diary, he's writing to God, writing, reflecting upon his life, he writes these beautiful words, and I, I know you've heard them before, but I'd just like to say them again. He says that our hearts are restless until they rest in you, O God. That line came from years and years of struggle, of running away from the Good Shepherd until finally being brought back to him. And St. Augustine is basically telling us that the answer to our restlessness, the answer to the restlessness of our world, of our culture, is God. It's that simple. Psalm 62 says, My soul waits for God. In Him alone is my strength. And there's a a more modern theologian by the name of Hans Ur von Balthasar. Don't ask me to spell that name. <laughs> but he's a, he was an extremely brilliant man. And in one of his meditations, he takes these words of St. Augustine, where St. Augustine says to God, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And in one of, in one of his meditations, he takes those words and he puts those words into God's mouth. And in this meditation, he has God saying these words, God's heart is restless until it rests in you, in me. Implying that the one who really suffers when we are alienated from God is God. That the one who was really suffering in all of St. Augustine's searching and restlessness and bad decisions, the one who was really suffering was certainly was Augustine. He was suffering. But even more than that, it was God. Think about God saying those words to you. My heart is restless until it rests in you. It almost seems like a heresy that God could be so emotionally involved in us. Michelle mentioned Father Michael who came here a couple years ago. I live with Father Michael right now and his nephew is I think about 23 years old, a young man, and his nephew has cancer. And he's very slowly beginning to lose his eyesight. And it's very interesting because him and I will talk regularly about, you know, I ask him, how's your nephew doing? And I'm almost surprised because Father Michael always talks about his nephew, but then he always mentions how concerned he is for his brother, who's the father of this young boy. And in some sense, he talks more about his brother than he does his own nephew. And the reason I believe he talks more about his brother is because in some sense, he's suffering more than his nephew who has cancer. Because this father, 
Now, this young man is utterly helpless. What can he do? He can't take the cancer away. And so, in a mysterious way, his father is suffering more than his own son who has cancer. And isn't that true, especially of you who are parents, who've ever had children suffer? I can't imagine how much St. Monica suffered watching her son ruin his life. And the greatest suffering was that she was, in some sense, helpless. She had to let go of her son and cling to Jesus. Well, in a very real way, God is like that parent who suffers when his children are suffering. Strange, isn't it? Why is God like this? You know, why does God pursue us? Even though oftentimes we're the ones who've gone astray. You know, in the Gospel of the Prodigal Son, which is in the same chapter as the parable of the lost sheep, that whole chapter 15 of Luke is just filled with these beautiful parables, really about homecoming. But in the parable of the prodigal son, if you remember, the younger son returns home because he realizes what a mistake he has made. He realizes the many dumb decisions that he has made in his life. And all of a sudden, in a moment of grace, he says, yes, I can go home to my father. But in this parable of the lost sheep, the shepherd has to go after the sheep because the sheep, the lost sheep, doesn't even realize who he is. He's in a sense poorer than the prodigal son because at least the prodigal son realizes he's made a mistake. At least the prodigal son realizes what he has done and that there's another option. But this poor sheep is clueless. He is ignorant of his identity, of who he is. And that's why the good shepherd goes after him. And this, I believe, gives us such a wonderful insight into the heart of God. And it is that God pursues us because we don't even realize who we are. St. John Paul II once said, I think it was in one of his first encyclical letters, he said that man cannot live without love. He said that he remains a being that is incomprehensible for himself. His life is senseless if love is not revealed to him. In other words, without love, our lives become a tragedy. They become a failure. And this is exactly what Jesus wants to prevent. This is why Jesus was stripped, 
mocked, beaten, and crucified. To show man, to show us, that God loves him. To show humanity that God is on our side. That God is not a dictator. That God is not some ruthless judge. That God is not some evil person who likes to create awful situations and then just sits back and laughs. But on the cross, Jesus shows us who God is. And he's intended to remind us that our identity, who we are, does not consist in the things that we have or the things that we do, but in the person that we are, in the person who we were created as. For us, oftentimes our identity is something exterior. You know, when we meet someone, what's the first thing we generally ask them? What do you do for a living, right? And I think it's a, it's a fairly innocent question. It's not a, I don't say it's a bad question. But the first thing we generally ask someone is, what do you do for a living? And then depending on their answer, we kind of size them up. Okay, this person's a teacher, so they make this amount of money. This person's a doctor. They make this kind of money. This person's a Franciscan. He doesn't make any money. (laughs) (laughs) But what happens is, depending upon their answer, we kind of size that person up. And we put them in a little box that says, okay, this is Linda, this is John, and this is all they are. And the sad thing is, we will never discover who we are or who the other person is with such questions. And you know the good news? God is not interested in those things, really. God has a much broader vision. God's not impressed by how much money we make or didn't make or the kind of car we drive or the kind of car we don't have. When I was in college a couple years ago, my senior year, I was living in an apartment with four guys. And right next to us was an apartment with four women. And one of those women was, we had the same major, and so I saw her almost every day. Because we had class together, we'd often have lunch together. And this young woman was a very, very intelligent woman. She had a very almost wholesome look about her. And I remember one Friday evening, I went, my, the guys, we went to order a pizza, and I went to go get the pizza. And when I went to the pizza place, this girl was with her friends. And I remember that this one Friday particularly, I didn't even recognize her because she looked completely different. She was dressed in a way that she'd never dressed before. And I didn't even recognize her. And it wasn't only until she came up and talked to me that I recognized, hey, we're neighbors, we have class together. And I remember leaving the pizza place just a little bit confused, like, what's, what's she doing? And after that weekend, I noticed that every weekend when I saw her, she would almost look the same way. And that during the week at school, she looked completely different. And I remember one Monday, 
we were having lunch together. And I asked her, I said, Erica, I said, why is it that on the weekends you dress and you look different than you do during the week? And as soon as I said those words, she had a tear in her eye and she looked down on the ground. She couldn't look at me. She said, because when I dress like that, guys tell me that I'm beautiful. You know what the real tragedy was? Was that Erica, that this young woman, didn't know how special she already was. And that she didn't have to try to dress or act in a certain way to all of a sudden become beautiful. Those guys were not interested in her as beautiful. That's the tragedy of it. And it's this reminder that our identity is not based on our exterior appearance, on our accomplishments. When I was young, I played baseball up until about 18 years old. And when I was young, I had this dream, this desire to become a baseball player. And when I was about 17, I realized I'm never going to make it to the major leagues. And the reason why is because I stunk. <laughs> the, re the reason why is because I just wasn't good enough. <laughs> I mean, I tried hard, I practiced, but there needs to be a certain level of ability, and I just lacked that ability. You know, I'm not afraid to say it, you know, it just wasn't good enough. And which is good because obviously God had other plans. But I remember at that moment when I was 17 and I realized this, for about a few weeks, my little world, it seemed, ended. It crumbled. And for a few weeks, I became depressed because I built my whole mindset, my whole life about this is what I'm going to do. And if it doesn't happen... There's no purpose to my life. Notice how I said my world ended and not reality, not God's world, but the one that I created. It was an illusion that I was hanging on to. And God in his mercy cut that illusion away from me so that I could see truth, so that I could see my life clearly. And so I'd ask all of us this question today. You know, whose world are you living in right now? You know, there is a reason why the way we want things to be rarely ever works. Anyone ever have that experience? <laughs> you know, God doesn't want to frustrate us. He doesn't even need to because we do that ourselves, right? Never in my life has anything ever happened the way I imagined it. Thank God, because it would be so boring if things happened the way I want them to happen. But the reason why they, they ever very rarely happen the way we want is because our way, our vision, the way we think things are supposed to be, is oftentimes so limited. It's so narrow. 
And quite honestly, it's oftentimes self-centered. And this is why God pursues us. Because we don't know who we are. And Jesus comes to rescue us. We are the lost sheep that Jesus is trying to rescue. Because in some sense, all of us have gone off thinking, okay, this is the way, this is what's going to make me happy. I'm just going to do this and it's going to be perfect. And Jesus leaves the others to come after us because he knows that way of thinking, that plan, is doomed to failure. It doesn't matter if we are rich or, young or poor, young or old, men or women, employed, unemployed, doesn't matter. St. Paul says it's so great in his letter to the Galatians. He says, through faith, you are all children of God in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with him. He says these beautiful words, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free person, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. How beautiful is that? That all of us, no matter where we've come from, the things we have done, no matter where we work, where we went to school, that we are all one in Jesus. That is our identity. You know, as human beings, we build these divisions, we build these walls. Rich and poor, black and white, all these silly, stupid divisions. And Jesus tears down these walls, and then we build them up again, and then he tears them down. What God wants from us is to realize, to accept and embrace our identity as his children. Many of us don't know what it is, and this is why he runs after us. This is why the parable of the lost sheep is an entrance into God's world, into God's way of thinking, which is a world very different than our own. And what does the Lord say in the prophet Isaiah, one of my most favorite scriptures? God says through Isaiah, he says, My ways are not your ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so high are my ways above your ways. So what do we have to do to realize our identity more deeply? I think the first thing we have to do is we have to stop running. We have to stop running and let ourselves be found by the shepherd, by the good shepherd, Who's looking for us? You know what the first question in the Bible that God asks? It's in the book of Genesis, chapter 3. After Adam and Eve had just sinned, all of a sudden they realize, one, that they're naked, and that all of a sudden things have changed because they sinned. And what do they do? They head for the hills. They try to hide from God try to run away from God because they realize something's wrong. And what does God say in the Bible? 
He says, where are you? It's almost a comical question, as if you could hide from God. You know? But God, in a sense, stoops down to their level. Okay, you want to be silly? I'll be silly too. Where are you, Adam? Where are you, Eve? And you know what's funny about that question? God knows exactly where they're at. He sees everything. But it's Adam and Eve who don't know where they are. And so we ask them, where are you? And he's not talking about, you know, where are you in southern Montana? Are you in Missoula? <laughs> are you in Kalispell? But he's saying, where is your heart right now? Why has it strayed from me? Why don't you trust me? Why have you abandoned me? And the same question is addressed to us every moment of our lives. Where are you? Because God is looking for you. God is looking for me. And this is the challenge, this is the call of the parable of the lost sheep. That we need to stop running. And we need to learn to be still and let ourselves be found. Because the Good Shepherd is looking for us. And as strange as it sounds, his heart is restless until it rests in us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.